to Z of UK TV drama with Andy and Martin. Welcome back to an A to Z of UK TV drama with me, Andy. And me, Martin. Hello. How are you doing, Andy? I'm good. Slightly overwhelmed by all the work I've got, but that's a good thing to have, and I'm aware that I'm lucky to have it. Indeed. (laughs) And and, and the rest of us are all... I, I just really was wondering whether you were in a state of shock and horror, having watched what we've been watching. Oh, good question. Um... No, probably <laughs> not. No, um, I think this episode. I'd kind of like you to set out your stall, and then I'll come in and uh, tell you what I thought. Okay. I'd, I'd prefer that if that's okay with you. Well, fair enough. well, what we are about to talk about, what we are about to uh, get, <laughs> give you our what we reckon on, is a a, a film, a Central Television film, made in 1989 by Central Television. From a script by Nigel Neal, based on a novella by Susan Hill, and it is called The Woman in Black. Now, The Woman in Black has a very good reputation as being one of the best ghost stories that was ever made for television. Uh, And it got a re-release on Blu-ray last year, uh, having not been available for a very long time. And some people might suggest that, uh, you know, they've been waiting for this a very long time and everything like that. And other people might suggest maybe it was on the shelf for very good reasons. Okay. Um, for a long time, the the only version of Woman in Black you could see, apart from the Hammer film version that was made about 10 years ago, hmm. was the stage play version. Yeah. And the stage play version is actually more or less the same age as the TV show, but ran pretty much non-stop for 30 years. And uh, the only thing that basically stopped it was COVID and all theatres stopping. I hadn't realised it was that successful. Wow, okay. It's it's a very successful stage show that sort of tours around with different... It's only two people in the cast. Yeah. And it tours around every so often. They do another tour of it. I've seen it twice in the theatre. Oh, have you really? Oh, wow, okay. once, Once with Frank Finley. Yes. And once with... Somebody else who I can't remember. <laughs> Once with somebody who was what shit the, what, compared to Frank Finlay. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's just it, the Frank Finlay one really stuck in my head and okay. the other one didn't. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, I have vague notion that Tim... Uh, Tim... McInerney? No, yeah, McInerney. 
I never can say it either. Might, might have been been in it, but I'm not 100% sure, so I wouldn't like yes. to. Yes. Now, the, uh, the, D- the, the Blu-ray packaging uh, gives you a nice little uh, intro, which basically describes what it's all about. Oh, go for it. Yeah. Which is basically, when a friendless old widow dies in the market town of Clithin Gifford, a young solicitor is sent in to settle her estate. Following cryptic warnings from the locals regarding the terrifying history of the old woman's house, he very soon begins to see visions of a menacing woman in black. For that is the title of what we're about to watch. (laughs) The Woman in Black. Excuse me, you dropped this. Thank you. I couldn't help noticing. uh, Mrs. Drablow. Yes. Don't tell me you're a relative. I'm her solicitor. (sighs) On the way to the funeral? I am. You'll be about the only person that is. Well, I gather she had no immediate family. No friends. An old woman living alone, you might expect her to be a bit of a recluse. So you might. Mr... My name's Arthur Kidd. Sam Tuvey. You evidently knew her, Mr. Tuvey. Well, hardly that. Not in recent times. I had no cause to visit her. And even if I had... Uh, directed by Herbert Wise, who we are quite fond of for his work on uh, I, Claudius. Absolutely. And of course, this leads into the casting. And I hadn't realised until I watched it that not only do we have Bernard Hepton, but we have John mm. Cater re- reunited, who, of course, Pallas and Narcissus in I, Claudius. Correct. The free men who um, advised Claudius. So he obviously mm-hmm. loved working with him on that. I thought, we'll have those two back. Good work. Interesting early appearance uh, for Stephen McIntosh, who I actually thought if this had been made two years later would probably have been the lead in this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> weirdly, exactly. but the that we- kind of actor. The weird thing about Stephen McIntosh as well is that the at the end, the maid, the crap maid Bessie, mm. I, was, I was like, who's that? And then Marissa's like, I know who it is, and it's the it's the woman who plays Stephen McIntosh's wife in the Muppets Christmas Carol. Because everything's connected. Everything's connected. So it's Clara, I think, in the um, Christmas Carol, the Muppet. Yeah. The other, other actors who are feature uh, in the cast are Trevor Cooper. Yeah. Um, Caroline John. Caroline John's there. Yes, she is. The mighty Liz Shaw. Underused. Very underused. John Franklin Rob- Robbins. Yes. Time Lord. And Dave- David Ryle, of course. Yeah. Who's the other one I was I was. Iron Gron. Iron Gron. Iron Grunt, David Dacre. No, it wasn't It wasn't because he was Iron Grunt. No. Um, it was Fiona Walker. Yes, Lady Painfort. And of course, Ag- Agrippina, Agrippina in I, Claudius. So there's a, so there's a lot of uh, connections with another show. And of course, as the woman in black herself, the lovely Miss Lemon. Yes, I know. She'd started doing Poirot by then, but this is a year in. Just about, yes. Yeah. They're about the, she was having a good year in 1989, I think. She was, uh, isn't she? Yeah. In, in terms of uh, casting. Yeah. So, that, and of course, the main uh, character, who has a name change from the book. Yes, he was Arthur Kipps in the book, wasn't he? Be- because uh, Nigel Neal didn't particularly like the Kiplingness of it apparently ah. uh, of Kips so he changed it to Arthur Kidd he's played by Adrian Rawlings who um, doesn't seem to have had a spectacular career but did 
he was Harry Potter's dad, apparently. Well, that's the weird connection as well. Something else linking up is, of course, the next person to play him was Daniel Radcliffe. So father and son in the Harry Potter series. It's weird. And he does briefly feature, he has a a brief role in the sequel as well. Oh, does he? Didn't know. The one in Black 2 that they made a few years later. She didn't Um, need to take revenge. She'd already done it all, surely. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but you're telling them the plot. No. um, So basically, yeah, um, woman in black. <laughs> Tell me, what what did you think? Well, I ordered this because I'm uh, quite a fan of Nigel Neal and I, I do feel we haven't particularly covered Nigel Neal in our A to Z so far. And or, thing, at all, or maybe, in fact. <laughs> well, I think, I think he, he may have had a cough and a spit of a mention in a certain episode, but uh, we haven't really sort of dwelt on, on, on Nigel Neal, who has, has his fans and obviously, you know, is very much respected in certain quarters yes i ordered um ordered this because i i had never seen it and basically people say as i've mentioned in the in the preamble people say it's one of the greatest uh, ghost stories for television ever made and i thought oh well that's you know it hadn't been available oh it's available i ordered this pretty much snapped it up the day it was announced yeah. you know all this kind of thing even uh you know whatever sort of i'm thinking well it's nigel neal i like nigel neal and you know this is supposed to be a good one uh and then it arrived and because people were really saying it freaked them out i'm not very good at being freaked out right by yeah stuff on the telly it, i i remember years ago uh watching the shining on my own in my flat when i had my flat in manchester and bloody hell it that you know you had to go to bed with all the lights on and everything like that <laughs> and and to be honest having seen the stage play yeah. the stage play gets in my head uh, and the both and the, and the thing that surprises me is that both times I've seen the stage play, I've had a real trouble. the The ideas behind the story lock in my mind yeah. and bother me. Yeah. So I kind of got this uh, Blu-ray and I sat there and I didn't unwrap it until we actually knew we were doing it for this sh- yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> I basically sort of thought, oh, I've got lots of other things to watch. I've got lots of other things. I never actually. Watched it, even though I, you know, been so keen to get it. I just thought because I kept reading people saying, "Oh, this is terrifying, this is terrifying." I thought, "Oh, I don't know. I'm not, I need to be in a good place, or it needs to be a lovely, bright, sunny afternoon." <laughs> yes, <laughs> or no, something. No, no need to rely on any electric lights during during watching. Yeah, <laughs> yes. this kind of thing. And so I, and so you know, and like I say, having been sort of messed around with for the um by in my head by the by the stage play, I finally put it in one morning a few weeks ago. And I don't know whether, you know, that thing where things get hyped so much that actually when you see them, you go, oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So, so I was kind of, I watched it and I thought, oh, this, this hasn't messed with my head. That was fine, you know. Yeah. And then, cause I, I actually sat down to watch it without writing any notes for, for this because I thought I just need to see it because if it's going to freak me out and I'm getting halfway through it, I'm trying to write notes and everything like that. And that'll, that'll me- mess with me. Yeah. So I thought I'll just watch it. Yeah. Just sit down and watch it. And then I watched it again for, you know, so I've seen it twice now. Yeah. And what fascinates me is that the one thing that people say sticks with them is at the end of one of the parts, I think it splits into four chapters effectively. Yeah. Is this screaming face coming out of the night. Yes. Uh, I know the one you mean. Yeah. 
that's quite a disturbing image that seems to have locked in a lot of people who saw this, a lot of people's minds who saw this on first transmission, a lot of people would have gone, oh, and that's stuck in their heads. Yeah. And it's stuck in their heads now for 32 years, 31 yeah. years. And, you know, so, so I'm thinking, oh, God, this is going to be, you know, this is really it. I'm going to be you know, stick, uh, putting some punctures in the arms of the chair and all this kind of thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I watched it. I thought, and maybe because I knew it was coming. Yeah. I was like, oh, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Which is a problem. Yeah. Because that's a problem generally of, of, of the ghost story generally. Now, so I've, I've seen it twice now. And yeah, it, it's a perfectly good. S- serviceable. Television ghost story. Yeah. The thing that interests me mm. about this is if you look at the wider genre of ghost stories generally very rarely are the characters in it particularly well drawn yeah because the nature of the ghost story is not necessarily to interest you in the characters it's to tell the ghost story yes and you're supposed to be creeped out and freaked out and this is going to happen and this is going to and you've got to be generally unsettled by it yeah now the problem with that is quite a lot of this particular production i mean it's an hour and what 40 minutes yeah actually very little actually happens until you get to the house and there's a lot of preamble now that okay is building atmosphere building Yeah, yeah you know the environment and everything like that but what it means is that you need to be engaged with the characters and the lives they're living and to a certain extent, Neil does that very well in Quatermass and the Pit, especially, but the Quatermass series. He writes these little tiny moments with characters. Yeah. Which actually make them interesting. Mm. Uh, he, he, certainly in the 50s, he could write these tiny little scenes that would make you tell you everything you needed to know. And, and you would sort of get the, an angle on a, on even a peripheral character. But the characters in this, I don't know. I found them less engaging. Yeah. Now, taking all that aside, what you've got here is a an ITV costume drama. Channel Four, wasn't it? Uh, no, ITV. Was it? Are you certain yeah. about that? Yep. ITV nine thirty to eleven thirty on Christmas Eve. I was so nineteen eighty nine. Why was I so convinced it was Channel Four? Central. I have the, yeah, you said Central, I have the, yeah. I have the very TV times in front of me. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely definite. Maybe I saw a repeat on Channel 4. I don't know, because I saw it... It like, was repeated a few years later. It was. I, I saw it when it... Uh, yeah, in the 80s or 90s. Either 89 or in the 90s. And I watched it by myself. And I remember... I think it's Christmas 94. I think it, oh, maybe it, I watched it then. Re-shown. Oh, anyway, I watched it and I remember thinking, oh, this is quite creepy, but I didn't, mm. I wasn't affected by that moment. I had no memory no. of that moment. Um, mm. But yeah, I did watch it back in the day. Um, mm. So I wasn't a- averse to the idea of watching it again. Yes. Mm. Hmm. So I didn't see it I, I, for whatever reason. Right. Uh, 1989, I, I really, I don't know. I, I just didn't see this at all. Uh, in fact, I probably didn't even know it existed. Which is kind of weird, but uh, it, it, there are you know there are phases in your life where other things, yeah, you know, of course, just draw you draw you in and and so on and so forth. So this, like I said, uh, turns up in the ITV schedule at nine thirty p.m. on Christmas Eve. Now, recent years, 
the BBC have started uh, uh, redoing the, the Christmas ghost story on Christmas Eve, uh, yeah. sort of little half-hour tales. And again, I don't know about you, but again, they're, they're perfectly pleasant. In well, not, was, was it unpleasant? unpleasant I mean, what I'm saying yes. is they, they serve they serve their half-hour thriller thing. But again, they're rarely about people you care about very much. Yeah, I mean, a good example is that tractate Midoth, which had a really good cast, mm. but it was just like it was like, uh, okay. I quite enjoyed that. That was half an hour, you know. Mm. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? Now, if you go back, I mean, I've still got on my shelf the BFI Ghost Stories for Christmas set, which oh, yeah. I bought donkeys years ago. It's stupid amounts of money. Okay. Uh, and it's still in the cellophane. <laughs> <laughs> Many a Christmas has passed without us watching a ghost story for Christmas. But again, that I think it's because I'm, I have this thing. I don't want these things getting into my head. Yeah, and I know that things like whistle uh, when I whistle when I come for you or something. Yeah, I know these things do. They're, they're psychological horror, and psychological horror to me. I mean, you know, lots of people really enjoy their horror. You know, they, I absolutely understand that, but I just don't like the way it just seeps into my subconscious. And it, and I think maybe that's also something about getting older. As I've I find that I don't like you know when when I was a, a kid you know horror films in the cinema i would you know i would go and see them like you know, lots of teenagers but but the idea of something like the saw franchise recently is oh, really yeah. i just I, it, nothing about it appeals no, to me at all me. the whole concept of it i just think that just sounds people being horrible to other people yeah and i i have a problem with that yeah i just have a problem with that I so mean, there's lots of different types of um there's genres within this genre aren't they and this is very much oh, yeah. in the mr james Christmas ghost stories vein, and mm. I know it has massive fans. That's kind of one of the reasons why I'm almost reluctant to talk about this. Mm. So, full disclosure, I messaged mm. Martin after watching it and said, mm. I don't know whether I want to do this episode of the podcast <laughs> because I was so aware how loved The Woman in Black is, mm. and I just didn't want to piss all over it. I mean, I'm not going to piss mm. all over it, but I, I just really felt quite let down by it, and I was like, oh, mm. that's that's an hour and 40 minutes of my life that I'm not getting back, which is it's a very negative way of looking at it. But I... And presumably you, you bought the disc. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah. That's There's a free copy of the, the back Woman in Black on Blu-ray is going free if anyone wants it. I'll just send it to you. Um, I mean... We should run a competition. <laughs> we yeah. should, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't want it. Um, but having said that's probably unfair. Well, you're not going to GBH it, though, are you? That's no, I'm not going to burn it on a bonfire like I did with GBH. True story. <laughs> <laughs> Although strangely enough, the uh, fire does play a large part in this. Yeah, story. exactly. No, so what did I think? I thought the production design was very good. I thought mm-hmm. it had an excellent cast. Apart from Adrian Rawlins, I thought was a bit one note, and I thought he wasn't very charismatic, and I wasn't surprised to discover he hadn't done much after. Um, mm. But I was surprised at the lack of dialogue, the lack of themes, the lack of mm. messages. I was surprised that it was it was just about that. Oh, it's a bit spooky, ooky, and mm. even then, I didn't think it did that very well. And there was mm. lots of times where I was expecting more jump scares with the woman suddenly appearing, and she didn't. Mm. And there was mm. so many times where I would have done stuff while his back was turned and him turning, and mm. there there wasn't even enough of that. And I I don't mm. I like being scared in a sort of. Um, I don't know, in a Doctor who sort of very safe way. I'm quite happy to right. be scared like that and mm-hmm. light horror. 
but I, I would yes. never go to like, any of those like Saw films or anything like that. I just can't mm. deal with it. And I'd also think there's something fundamentally sick about horror films that I, I can't get behind. And mm. I should say that so that people know that I'm coming from that place and therefore I'm just mm. a different person to you if you like this stuff. I'm just not... I can't do it. Yeah. So, But I quite like psychological stuff. Um, and to be a bit scared, you know. Mm. But... The end. It was the ending for this for me. The ending of this, yeah. this drama. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yes, we have to say. We have to say. And if if you haven't watched it, then watch it and then come back. You're back mm. in the room. Um, that in the end. She just kills him and his entire family when a, a, mm. a tree just falls on the boat, on the boating lake. Mm. And it was just like... Which is a deviation from the novella okay, and also and the, and the stage play. Okay. Um, so you'll have to tell me about that in a minute, but can I just say how I felt? Um, I just... It felt to me like it was just like, really? Is that how you're ending it? I felt it was mm. so flat. And it was just so... I felt it was such a missed opportunity because there was no opportunity for a hero to overcome something or for mm. some people to escape through wit or through intelligence. There was mm. no sort of... Any of those tropes around... It was just... It was just... This is just basically the you're all doomed yeah, all, and, all and con- playing in yeah. to a certain extent to the shock ending. Yeah, all conquering the evil. And suddenly mm. she has, you know, complete omniscient, omnipotent power... And can do whatever she wants. She can appear wherever she wants. She can do whatever she wants. And mm. there's nothing you can do. And maybe people are fascinated by that. Maybe they think that's an amazing thing. I think it's mm. really lazy storytelling. <laughs> well, if you, if you, if, I mean, if you, I suppose the theory is that if you've invested uh, in uh, characters for the running time, the two hours it's on, or yeah. whatever, including commercial break, uh, then you will be shocked when, when, you get that ending. I mean, there are feature films from the same sort of era that play on the same kind of shock yeah. ending. I mean, um, I'm trying to think, what's, what's that one? Does it Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, where the I'm ruining that film for you now as well. I don't know that film. Or, 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 even, <laughs> or even even Thelma and Louise to a certain yeah. extent. The, the, yeah. um, the ending is, oh, and that might well be what it's playing into that sense of, you know, you, you can't possibly, you can't possibly, oh, you did, you know. But with Thelma and Louise, there's a sort of a freedom to that decision, and it's kind of like, yes, it's kind of, oh, yeah, it's no, kind of empowered no, and everything. Yeah, but yeah. this is well, just... If you don't know that's how it's going to end, yeah. that's still, when you're walking out the cinema, you're going, what? Yeah, but that's, know, a, that's, that's a good ending. part of the effect you're yeah. going for. But with this, so it's just, it's just she is evil, ghosts are bad, they, are, they exist, the end. And I just yeah. think, really? It just seemed, the word I came back to again and again was it was childish. And I know that's really sounds really patronising and arrogant of me, but I just found it really childish. I was like, anyway, <laughs> the ghost the, the ghost was successful in in all its endeavours. Yes, its ghostly endeavours. Yes, yeah. uh, again, that might well be just uh, part of trying to make a, an enclosed story rather than you know. Yeah, but but the interesting thing is, of course, because the the novella is written, shall we say, from the main character uh, reflecting. On the incidents that happened when he was young, if you see what I mean. So he does survive the novella. Well, I like that then. That's better. Yeah. 
and the the stage play again it it it's more and i think the film even it's it's more that he is targeted so his family are destroyed rather than which is horrible uh, but yes okay yes but so and it's to do with vengeance on people who have children i mean that again if you are a person who has children that probably feels quite distasteful yeah as, really as, really as a christmas entertainment really, well just as any entertainment <laughs> i don't find that entertaining super distasteful i found that and maybe, I can, maybe, can maybe it, people were wrapping their parcels thinking i'm gonna kill them bloody kids <laughs> while this was on the going Aha! <laughs> it's, no i just I, you see i just think it no. was i didn't like it but also does that make sense plot wise the fact that yes i can kind of understand it on a basic level she had that kid mm taken away from her is that what happened and therefore um yes but therefore she takes revenge on anyone who has children it just seems mental it's like the yeah. plot of a midsummer murders so yeah. midsummer murders i kind of used to watch and kind of quite enjoy but i really mm-hmm. only really like the episodes where there was a good intelligent reason why they did the murder but the more yeah. it went on it was always like it was like, but why did they do it? Oh, they're mad! They're mad! They just like killing people. We we want to do various murders based around the theme of cheese. <laughs> so therefore, yes. the first one, the first one has to be a Wednesday. <laughs> Honestly, it was just so many episodes where it was just like, oh, they're mad, they're mad, and that's yeah. what our joke was. Midsummer murders in the end was it was just oh, they're mad, and it was just like. Well, it is interesting uh, actually when you look look at things like Seven, for example, mm. uh, uh, the, those kinds of. Uh, serial killer movie. Yeah, is the 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 quiet desperation of something like mid midsummer. Yes, <laughs> midsummer, not midsummer. Well done. I I always call it midsummer. It's really annoying me. Um. Anyway, <laughs> let's not worry about that. <laughs> no, let's not. That's that's a bit of an in joke there. Don't worry about. <laughs> yeah, there weren't, um, there weren't too many takes on that. No, only the fifteen. <laughs> anyway, uh, midsummer murders. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing about it was is that they were they were kind of looking for a connection that wasn't obvious. Yeah. And they spent this you got to the point where literally they'd sort of think, Well what's got oh I can open my kitchen drawer. Oh there's a fork, there's a knife, there's a spoon <laughs> There's a teaspoon, and you could right. I could so the first person could be killed with a fork, and the second, and it's like they were looking for a, a, a an obscure yes. enough connection. Yeah. And so you know, I, I'm not mocking when I say cheese. I believe there is one that's, that's cheese themed. Oh, not surprised. But, not surprised. So and and this is the kind of thing that you get. So what you've got in this one is that this what happened was that many many years earlier there was a tragedy. Yeah. Of uh, of this woman trying to take take back her bastard child who had been taken away from her. Yeah. Uh, the carriage they were on fell into the Grimpen Mire. No, into the into the um into the Pissant into the, Swamp. Well, if you're the Pissant Swamp, <laughs> yeah. uh, but the certainly the causeway, the mud around the causeway. Yes, the mud flats. This, yes, the mud flats and death and horror, and we have a vengeful spirit. Yes. Interestingly, we should also. Uh, make a vague, vague connection. Gosh, because uh, I did suddenly realise this morning that we have because and we have failed to mention Claire Holman. Well, she's not in it that much, is she? But we have an early appearance of Claire Holman, who has a Lewis connection, as did Amanda Hillwood. Oh, of course, yes. Who had a Morse That's connection. That's what I know her from. It's from Lewis. Okay, I couldn't remember what I knew her from. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, she was all. In fact, she was in some of the later Morses, but then they carried her character over. Ah. So, um, good knowledge. So, so that's kind of we, all I'm saying is we now have a connection with 
this episode and our last episode with the the universe of Morse. Completely irrelevant, but <laughs> but you I felt thought, you had I to force that connection. Yes, uh, there's something to talk about in it. Now, yeah. the other thing before we actually get into this, the film itself. Oh gosh, we, we, I, I've already spoiled the ending. We haven't even got to the start. Sorry about it's that. It's fine. <laughs> Is uh, generally, I have you seen a lot of Nigel Neal television? Work. No, all I've seen is Quatermass and the Pit, and mm-hmm. I've seen whatever you call the John Mills Quatermass. I can't remember what that one's called because I get confused. I believe it's called Quatermass. Okay, <laughs> some people call some people call it the Quatermass Conclusion, but that's the edited film yeah. version. So I've seen that. Uh, it was just Quatermass. Bit, bit of verity, you know. What else but, have um, I seen? I've, I'm sure I've seen a drama, another drama he did. I don't know. Mm. Well, you see, the thing about it is, is yeah, uh, you tell me what, what's what's available. Because like I say, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, you know, I, I can mainline Nigel Neal. This is why, again, I easy. was worried about doing this episode because I knew how much you liked Nigel Neal. I was like, well, I didn't like mm. it. Anyway, yes. Oh, well, this is this is this is my qualifier. Okay, good. Is that the things that are available are things like the Year of the Sex Olympics, uh, the Stone Tape. Yeah, the Stone Tape has interesting parallels with this, I think. But uh, we'll move on to that. There's a series called Beasts. Which was made by ITV in the seventies, and there's also there's a, a collection of TV movies called The Crunch. Oh wait, wait, sorry. Can I just say I've seen? Oh, did he write um, The Entertainer? I'm not sure. I may have missed that one, but I know he did write a couple of uh, sharps and stuff. But the interesting thing to me is, despite the fact that, again, people like Mark Gattis, people like yeah. Kim Newham will will rave absolutely rave about Nigel Neal's work. Yes. I I have seen all the I've seen Beasts, I've seen Year of the Sex Olympics, yeah. I've seen Stone Tape. And I find them very difficult to rewatch. The only Nigel Neal I'm drawn back to again and again is Quite a Mass in the Pit, which I do think is a masterpiece. I genuinely do. I think it's a television yeah. masterpiece. But the interesting thing about that is that it's in nineteen fifty nine and the rest of his career, nothing had quite the same impact at all, really. Yeah. He had a good reputation, and he would get commissioned, and things like Stone Tape would come along, and people would love them. But this is, you know, it's very, it's a very sporadic career, right? I would say after after Quatermass, it really. I mean, I know he has a reputation for being, or had a reputation for being a bit of a curmudgeon mm-hmm. and difficult to work with, and that you know you either go with that or you you know you, that doesn't bother you or whatever and maybe that might have affected over the years yeah. and you know like a lot of writers more he probably made most of his money for stuff that never got made you know? mm. but the fascinating thing to me is that i feel that quatermass in the pit is a high point and everything else doesn't quite engage me in the same way i've i, I say i was bought year of the sex olympics i watched it i enjoyed it I've never watched it again, you know. I, I bought the the Crunch, watched that set, three television plays, enjoyed them, never watched them again. So I I do find maybe that there's stuff about Neil that isn't quite as engaging as it could be. Okay, but that's just me. So let me just tell you um, about the film The Entertainer, 1960. Mm-hmm. It says on IMDb that it was written by John Osborne and. Mm. Nigel Neal, and it right. is superb. It's fantastic. I forgot I'd seen it. It's with 
It's Laurence mm. Olivier playing Archie okay. Rice, an old-time British music hall performer who's sinking mm. into final defeat. And it's got Joan Plowright, um, Alan Bates, Daniel mm-hmm. Massey, Albert Finney, Shirley Ann Fields, Laura Heard, Miriam Carlin. It's got a brilliant cast. I really recommend mm-hmm. anyone who's not seen that film to watch that film. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. that's an aside, and it's not a TV series, so I should be mm-hmm. punished severely for mentioning it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a button I can press to electrocute you in your chair. <laughs> Yet. Oh! <laughs> 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 But I do have a sinister woman who will lurk outside your window. Yes. Well, she should have... Point at you in a way. The point is, she should have lurked more. There was not enough lurking for me. I would have had her behind windows. I would have had her perched in different places. Not there enough. Mm. Get Pauli Mm. Moran in more places all around the district for Mm. me. Anyway. Now, the other other side of this coin... Yes. ...is I actually... uh, From... I mean, I've written about this before, but uh, the thing about uh, Quite Mass in the Pit specifically is I genuinely think that it, it's a masterclass in how to write a sense of growing, creeping tension and horror. Mm. Across the course of those episodes, just little moments sort of make you, put you on edge, yeah. and then you put on edge a bit more. And so in many ways, that would seem to be ideal for this, for a, a production like this. Yeah. You know? And Nigel Neal is, is very good at creating a, a sense of creeping menace. Yeah. A sense of creeping menace so it, as as a as a production progresses. Yeah. The interesting thing is that we are being uh, he's being directed here by uh, Herbert Wise, yeah. or his his words are being directed by Herbert Wise, and the uh, Rudolf Cartier was a, his main collaborator in this in the fifties. Yeah. And I wonder whether. We may be underestimating the power of the director in these situations okay. over the writer. Yeah. Because now as as we have previously mentioned, Herbert Wise, you know, in terms of television production, you know, right up there. Yeah, of you course. Know, you know what I'm saying? Did you see the, the nice little bit on the set dressing? His name. Hys, yes, I did. By this trailer, yeah. I thought that was quite indulgent, actually. Indeed, <laughs> bit, bit, bit of, bit of self, uh, yeah, putting yourself in the plot there. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind, of, it's kind of nice if you know it, yeah. if you notice it, and, and everything like that. But and I just wonder whether maybe moving to film wasn't Herbert's greatest um, mm. career move. I don't know because in, in a television studio, brilliant, you know, um, but whether. Shooting on film was necessarily his his best. I mean, I think in terms of the production design, I liked how it looked. I thought it was quite beautifully mm. filmed and, and and shot. I I liked it, mm. and I thought mm. it had it had a nice atmosphere, and it was. Mm. I didn't think it was spooky enough. I can't believe I'm saying this as someone who doesn't like horror films. Um, I did. Mm. I felt there was more opportunities to make it more scary, and for there to be mm. more moments where she would suddenly appear, as I've said. Mm. So I felt that there wasn't enough of that almost. Um, mm. certainly not enough of making you jump because the mm. only jump we jumped at was when she suddenly appeared in the bedroom, the famous scene. But even then, yeah. I only jumped a little bit. And, yeah. and a I, small jump. Yes, and I didn't... You had a tiny jump. Yeah, and I didn't know it was going to happen. <laughs> Just a tiny jump tonight, dear. <laughs> but, um, and I thought, you, can, you can't match that sort of British production value of, of that the look and feel of it. But I just felt, in terms of... I mean, we'll get into it, but some so many elements were underused that I felt mm. 
I felt it was kind of unforgivable there. I'm being very harsh today. But like Well, you know, yeah. You're allowed. <laughs> um see the production itself, yeah. when you get into it, starts off at the offices of Sweetman, Haig and Sweetman Does. solicitors. And what you get is to to take you into this, you get one of those things without which impresses me or interests me is you get the ITV period drama style. Mm. And I don't know, but do you get the impression that ITV period drama is a very different beast to BBC period drama? And whether it's to do with the fact that ITV at this stage had just started filming Poirot. It felt very Poirot. It did feel really Poirot. They were actually getting quite good at the sort of 1920s cars and Yes, it felt quite expensive, yeah. Where, whereas the BBC, they tend to go a bit further back in time, so it's all horses and carriages. <laughs> okay, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think because the classic age of British costume drama is more the 70s, isn't it, and mm. the early 80s, and therefore there's a lot of the mix between studio and film. Whereas mm. when ITV really started to go for this genre, like the Poirot is probably the most the, the pinnacle, um, mm. then I mean, Wish Me Luck was also period wartime, very well done mm. um, at the same time. And mm. and I think the ITV did it at the point at which um, there was more money around at that point, mm. And therefore it looks quite, it looks very good. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I just thought I was in my head, I was sort of making a mental comparison with the carnival scene that we thought was a bit excessive in Persuasion. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, as opposed to the, uh, it, this street full of cars, which, again, you didn't need... I mean, there was a lovely double-decker bus at one point uh-huh. sort of kind of chugging along. But it's kind of it, it's kind of like... It felt unnecessary, but it was kind of like, put the money on screen, this is a film, you know, yeah. this, is, this is central television's film arm. Yeah. Trying to sort of, I don't know, go for the international market to a certain extent. Yes, yeah. And... I don't know. See, there, there are. It, it's just. It, it felt weirdly not like a BBC one, and I can't understand what it is. There was just something about the way it was shot that made me immediately think this is an ITV. Period. Well, it's funny because because I didn't check because I I assumed it had been on Channel Four because that was my memory, which mm. was incorrect. But I knew it was definitely the other side. You know, darling, I mm. definitely knew it wasn't BBC. Yeah. <laughs> so you're right just about that. Very, There's something about it. Yeah. Very very strange. Now the other thing is that there are a couple of themes i think in the solicitors scenes i mean we okay. we obviously get a, a very nice because we, we are taken into the offices and some of the um character moments are basically we're getting a sense of time from the fact that the two lads in the office the two junior clerks are discussing the latest charlie chaplin film mm. in the way that people now would talk about the latest bond film or whatever <laughs> Have you seen him, Mr. Kidd? What's that? The new Charlie Chaplin, the gold rush. He eats his boots. <laughs> yeah, get it out of that. How did we do? Six guilty, two got off. The indecent exposure, you got a month. Oh, six boots. <laughs> he was on a bicycle. <laughs> Come on, you two, break it up. Which I thought was quite nice, actually, in terms of, you know, just giving them a bit of business. Completely and utterly redundant, but it gives you a sense of place. But the interesting thing for me is that within this, 
you get a meeting with Mr. Sweetman, the elder Mr. Sweetman, which is David Ryle. Yeah. And he's basically the guy who sends our hero off to deal with the estate yeah. of Mrs. Drablo. Mrs. Drablo. And the interesting thing is that within that scene, you've got a whole load of stuff about being saddled with a wife and family at your age. Yeah. Which I thought was very interesting subtext to the whole thing. He's like, I don't know whether Nigel was... Because, I mean, he had a great marriage and has wonderful kids. Or had wonderful kids. Yeah. Or that, yeah. And and yet you kind of think, was he being seen? You know that whole thing about the thing that stops creativity is a pram in the hall or whatever it was, you know? Yeah. Sit down, Mr. Kid. Do you see yourself as having a future with this practice? A partnership, perhaps? Ultimately? I hope so, sir. Then, sir, you must learn to take yourself seriously. I've watched you chattering with the junior clerks. That won't do. I, I didn't realise. You must cultivate authority. I know. Take a look at yourself. What's that on your sleeve there? Uh, uh, that was the baby last night. I, I thought you sponge that off. My wife, that is. Mr. King. To have saddled yourself with a wife and family at this stage in your career. You know my opinion. I shan't repeat it. I did start to wonder whether where Nigel was feeling a bit bitter about family life. <laughs> yeah, but it's because <laughs> it Susan, felt like it's a... from Susan Hill's novella, though. So yeah. you know, though she'd just given birth when she wrote it, so you know, yeah. So maybe that was part of it. But it's a sort of thread that runs through it. And the other thread generally is this. And again, this is possibly just me, but this sense of the folly of ambition, and and the, yeah, this just another theme that that runs behind the plot is this this sense of the folly of ambition, which I just felt. Was a kind, so I felt there were these sort of two threads okay, running through. So the let me say, I think the folly of ambition was the only theme in the entire thing, and that's the ah, only okay. theme that I really liked. And right. There was only one speech I liked in the whole thing, and that was Bernard mm-hmm. Hepton's one about hobbies being pointless, and he didn't know why he kept on doing mm-hmm. what he was doing with the land ah. land management. That was the best scene in the whole thing, mm-hmm. and I loved it. I've heard it said you'll earn half the county. <laughs> I might at that. Why do I do it? I don't know. Why do you? I don't know. No reason except to go on and on. Doing it becomes its own reason, you see. And in the end, there's no point at all. It's like all hobbies. Essentially pointless. Will you agree, Margaret? My territorial ambitions are singularly pointless. Um, mm-hmm. But what I don't understand, going back to the start bit, is why was David Ryle's character sending him to the estate mm. when he knew about mm. the area, was scared of it, when he knows that he's got a wife and children? And, th- mm. and there's a curse. It didn't make any sense mm. because no. he was effectively sending sending them to their death. Yes. So that doesn't, if he knew if he knew the local history, and I'm sure he did, and that was the implication then that was just fucking appalling as a decision. And looking back yes. on that, it doesn't make sense. No. I mean, you could argue it's the power of bosses to tell you to do what you like, but yes, in, in that era. But no, it's it, it when things unfold the way they do, yeah. it does it does seem uh, an ill-judged thing. Especially when he's especially when when he's talking to him, 
that's not the issue. He's annoyed with him because he's got children. And he's not even thinking about, oh, he's got to go off and do this task and therefore his children might be in danger. He's literally mm. only thinking about the fact, I'm annoyed that this guy has children that he's got babysick on mm. his shoulder. And it's like, well, mm. what? So, Well, I could take a step back from that and just say, that's because businessmen are bastards. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but it was, just, it was just a weird decision. I yes. Think, I think it didn't link up plot wise very well no and indeed and indeed you know could somebody else have gone i mean hmm. it, it does it the the suggestion in the later scene when when obviously all the things have happened our hero returns to the office yeah. is that he he knew all about this and he sent him there deliberately and yeah and he is annoyed about it but you kind of think you have put this person in this in this known cursed situation i mean you could argue that the rationalist would say it's nonsense but obviously it patently isn't nonsense because there's a graveyard full of children that we we get to visit you know yeah yes so anyway should we should we get on to where he gets to um whatever it's called uh yes i briefly did want to just touch on you get a little bit of family life and there's all this stuff with a kazoo and yada 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 which is just to show oh look he's got a happy family but it's also Uh, to show that he has this habit of bringing presents now this is something else i didn't understand okay mm. so can you tell me what happens to the toy soldier i know that's sleeping about so the toy soldier which was in the chest which he looks for and he's not there and he goes crazy later on Mm. where did do we see the toy soldier again I, I'm not convinced. It turns up in the box in the office. Yeah. No, it doesn't. It's not there. Is it not? No. And he's looking for it frantically. It's not there. The last time you see it is when he finds it in the morning. Um, right. You know, after it back up in Griffin Gifford or whatever right. it's called. Okay. And I just thought this was a complete missed opportunity. And I'm not a mm. horror buff, but I absolutely would... Because they even had that scene where the kid went into his pocket and said, mm. and he tries to feel in his pocket and, and um, mm. he says, oh, there's nothing there for you today. There's no present there. Because mm. he has this habit. Mm. They set up this trope, this thing mm. of he'll go into this pocket for the gift from his daddy. And mm. what I would absolutely have done of him saying, oh, there's nothing in there today. And they have to have the child pull out the soldier mm. and him freak out. That's absolutely mm. what you would have done. And mm. I couldn't believe that wasn't part of the drama. I was like, Really? You're not mm. going to bring the toy soldier back, even though it went missing. So this missing toy soldier never reappears. Mm. And that should be absolutely the symbol of her power and terror. Mm. And they just pissed it down the toilet. They didn't use it. And I was like, really? Mm. And I thought even on the boat at the end, you might even see the child's hand with the yeah. soldier in the in his hand after mm. it was dead. Or, or you know, mm. or at that moment, it's suddenly being something he had in his hand. So like, where did you get that? You know, to his son. Mm. And then for him to see the the woman, but it wasn't that wasn't used. That was very strange to me. There. I, I was conv- I I was convinced it turned up. So there we go. That shows what I was. Well, maybe maybe twice. well maybe I'm wrong. Where did you think it turned up? I thought it, it turned up in the bottom of the box. I genuinely did. That's kind of weird. No, it's empty. The box is empty. Mm-hmm. Because he's looking for it and he goes mental and he sets the most hilarious fire in the history of anyone setting a fire in anything I've ever seen. We can come back to that later, though, because it's quite far on. <laughs> Fair enough. So anyway, we we travel by chopper train. Yes. To Crithin uh, Gifford. Yes. And of course, uh, upon this very train is one Mr. Bernard Hepton. 
playing some two. Yes, and my my comment on that was that he wasn't at all like Albert, and it just made me realise what a versatile actor Bernard Hepton is. And mm. he had a different accent. He was playing country, and he was very good and authoritative. And I liked his performance. Mm. And uh, the, the you know, lines in it. There's a lot of ominous talk that makes you think in the real world you go you are <laughs> yeah well that's what i didn't like about it as well it was all the talk was really cliche it was like oh i wouldn't go up mm. there and not after dark mm. <laughs> all that sort of it's all very like Aye. that it's like oh please yeah. <laughs> but yeah. i know that again that's sort of playing on on, on the uh, on the traits of it and everything yeah. like that you know? yeah and basically all, all this talk of sea frets and calling them sea frets and not sea mist. Oh, it shows you're not a local. You're not from round these parts. One of, one of my favourite bands <laughs> is called Sea Fret. All right. Yes, a very good band. Do check them out. They're very good. That'll be some sort of pop music combo. Yes, presumably. they're a duo um, from, where is that? Just up from me, just north of Bridlington, they're from. Yes. Right. And they're called Sea Fret and they're wonderful. Anyway. Are, are, they, are they as old as the Beatles? Oh gosh, no! They're they're quite mo- they're quite modern. No oh, modern. <laughs> they have idea. albums have now, darling. Al <laughs> <laughs> what's? Oh, LPs. They have LPs. Okay. Check them out on Long sp- check them out on Spotify if you know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Spotty what? <laughs> I think that was at the right speed. That was uh, the sea frets. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, John Peel. Yes. Um, so we go to the market town and we get nice, again, market day, beautifully realised. In the um, village of Laycock, is that right? Um, the antique village. Is that where the. Yes. Ah, yes. Sorry, I thought you meant. Yeah, sorry. No, I think it's still Crithin Gifford. <laughs> <laughs> idiot. I do wonder whether they, they were the two sort of names of two producers he didn't like or something. I know, it was an odd name. It was an odd name. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Kidd, Arnold Pepperell, excuse my glove. You've been managing things here? Yes. Uh, these are the documents from Mr. Sweeney. Oh, thank you. If you're ready, I think we should leave. I trust you were comfortable. The market days are about their busiest. That's all right. It's noisy, though. <laughs> But anyway, um, so we get Market Day, and there is an accident at Market Day. Yeah. And I, uh, the thing that surprised me about Market Day, uh, apart from all the ominous talk of these, see, and the fact this this house is out on a causeway and slightly yeah. badly matted in, is that. It just struck me, uh, or rather didn't strike me, or didn't strike anybody, but when <laughs> there is uh, one of the, uh, a wagon with many, many logs upon it, um, yes. hits a corner. Yes. And uh, and basically uh, there is a calamity and these children are not perished. One child is not perished, yes. Yes, this it, it does, does not die because cause Arthur steps in and ruins the plans, presumably, of the, of the woman in black. Right, okay, so I have a... And therefore gains her vengeance. But, but the interesting yeah. thing is, is that I just I just thought, this is a bit of foretelling because this I, th- I feel that the tree is a weapon of choice. Yeah, okay, so that links that. Okay, vaguely. 
I suppose. No, no, I was just saying, so the weapon of choice of, of the evil ghost lady is the tree. I can't yeah. just fell trees, I can also fell chop trees. Yes. <laughs> that such is my power. So, um, just, so basically, this is the whole trees as killers thing is yeah. being set up. But what I really state. didn't like about this at all was hmm. that... There was no connection with her. I mean, if you'd seen her from a window, sort of like, or nearby at that point, mm. even if just as the viewer, that you could see mm. that she had something to do with that accident. Mm. But the fact that... Well, at that stage in the film, it's just an accident. Isn't it? it is, but later on you kind of say, oh, I think it was this. And it's kind of like, well, how did you mm. leap to that? That was a bit weird. But mm. I thought, because I didn't remember what the plot was about, I thought it was going to be mm. about the fact that because he helped the gypsy girl cheat death, Mm. Therefore, the thing would be that he discovered that the gypsy girl was killed. You know, like the film mm. Final Destination, where they 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 uh, it's unavoidable. Yes, thing. and that mm. she would, unavoidable destiny. Yes, you. and that she was like, well, I tried to kill that girl, and I'm going to make sure she's dead this time because I hate mm. people having children. But mm. instead, she kind of just gets annoyed about the fact that what looks like an apparent accident actually was not. So it's the implication is that was definitely her will to kill that child in that mm. moment. Mm. Okay. So, uh, I don't know. I have a problem with that. I just don't buy that it was her and mm. it wasn't made clear enough. And also, mm. the cheating death thing, well, surely the child should have died. And also, it was a child that was unloved because it was a gypsy child. It was the implication mm. that, oh, it doesn't matter because it's a gypsy child. There was definitely some anti-gypsy things, stuff going on there as well. Oh, it was just a gypsy mm. child. Why do you care? It's like, wow. Mm. <laughs> It's like, wow, what? So that child's less important? Great. It's probably, to be fair, that was possibly the attitude of the time yeah. in these these out-of-the-way places. You know, yeah. We don't like outsiders here. <laughs> no. They, they come and they steal our candy canes on market day. <laughs> they do on market day. It'd be market day and they stole our candy cane. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. And therefore they must be punished by the almighty. They, they the I don't know. Yes. yes, but anyway, and so we've also at this stage we, we've we've been to the funeral. Yes, uh, and basically, the only, there's only three people at the funeral, and one of them's a ghost. <laughs> but the, can I tell you something about the way they realise her? the The thing is that the idea is that she is he experiences her like she's there, like mm. uh, like just a person standing there, yeah. and that is explicitly said in the script. And whenever she does appear, it is absolutely like that. Like she could reach mm. out and touch her. And I think, mm. I thought that was really funny and, and cheap of them and clever of them because they didn't mm. have the effect to make her look ethereal. So they could just mm. have her looking like a person just stood there because then they didn't have to explain why she didn't look particularly ghostly or see-through or wafty or had, you know, glow off her. I just thought it was like... I think it's interesting when she walks into the church or where she appears in the church, though, that she doesn't look as ghostly or as dead. Well, at least I didn't get the impression she did. I think she looks it's, like that most uh, times, every time. But it's but uh, what I I did like actually uh, from a t- from my own point of view was the technical way that they did manage to get her not there, not there, not there. She's obviously, I mean, she's obviously popping up from behind a gravestone or whatever while while the camera is is masking her. But I did quite like the way they did that. It was kind of you know a, a, a technically impressive way of making the manifestations happen now you know if, if you're not doing sort of something that's effects heavy and yeah and i believe not, uh, nigel neal wasn't a big fan of effects kind of movies anyway but uh, just for, for him to be walking along and then 
stop and then carry on walking and she's there is actually quite effective. Yeah, I, Again, but yeah. but that comes very much from the traditional uh, tradition of stage, if you like. Yes. It felt very theatrical from that point. Yeah. And to, to suddenly have that silhouette there when it wasn't there when he was walking along, I think is actually a very impressive. They, they do that at least twice. Yeah, I, and I agree. That is effective. I agree. I just I was just making a point that it was a way of cheaply not having to do an effect of any type. And while we're at it, because obviously, um, again, within the graveyard, uh, he actually goes back to the graveyard later and, and finds that doesn't he? It's not in the same scene where he finds the many children graves. It seems after that's been sort of seeded. The interesting thing from that point of view is that the, the children stay outside the graveyard, and we're kind of wondering why that is. It's always like, is that what they do for fun in this village? They go. <laughs> Watch the aftermath of funerals. I don't know. Is that what kids do? I don't know. I think it is what kids do if they're bored. I, I mm. could see that in this Go village. Watch life. a funeral. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, the, the only amazing thing about that scene is how many children were there. Because mm. apparently the woman in black can kill whoever, whatever child she wants whenever. So they've done very mm. well to get to that age. <laughs> well, this is the thing again, is I, I don't know whether it's a kind of Herod thing where she does the firstborn or, or <laughs> once, you've, once you've lost one. You know, because all all the other characters in this, apart from our hero, yeah, Arthur, they basically have to live with the loss. Yes, and that is actually the kind of that's the that's the curse. So, in many ways, in finishing them all off in that boat at the end, yeah, is is a different kind exactly of revenge. But is that because he is that because he saved that child? You see, so he was angry because, but that. That's really weird. <laughs> I, just don't, I don't like that. It's just like, no, it's not well enough plotted in that sense. But yeah, it's a good. But point. living with the, uh, but the curse would be living. Of course, with the loss, that's not obviously the loss much itself, worse. Yes, well, I mean, yeah, the cost as well. But yes, but living with it for the rest mm. of your life. But then, why would you say in Griffin Gifford you wouldn't? You'd go. You'd be like, this was horrible. I'm leaving. If you believed it was that woman who cursed the area, why would you stay? Don't know. Well, and this is the other side of that coin that that she, from from just. I mean, unless you're actually saying within in the plot that her power is getting greater and greater and greater, or they happen to have gone on, they decided to go out for the day on a boat trip. Let's go back to that place you've just been at, nearly died at. <laughs> the the proximity. The, now she's out in 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 the wide world. She's in London. <laughs> exactly, she you know, can go that, anywhere. She's now. in that London. But that's the thing. She gets more and more omnipotent as it goes along, mm. and I just found that quite yeah. farcical. I think it was kind of nice mm. and creepy that she was suddenly, oh, it was the person who came for it at the office. He visited. Mm. I thought that was good and clever. But I yeah. just felt that it was like, well, if you can't get away from her, it would have been, mm. in a way, I would have kind of liked more of a mental approach to it. So it was kind of like, because mm. they were kind of possessed by the idea of her and fascinated by her, mm. that they actually brought her into being almost. Yes. And they accepted that curse into their mm. heart and therefore that happened. Would have been cleverer. Mm. But because there was no sort of narrative of people's thoughts or any talking around that, you just have to imagine that, and it wasn't part of part of it. Well, again, you would think it was the whole thing was the people of this village that she took offence to because they, you know, when she tried to steal back her child or something, yeah. that it was actually it was on the families in that village. She had her. Avengers, but but by the end of it, she's just basically against the entire universe. Yes, exactly. I will kill all children. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of much more um, 
interesting from that point it's of not view. It's not interesting. It's, it's pathetic and childish. That's no, just, well, no, I just mean how, in the sense of how would you, you know, stop it? You know, there is, this now basically means that nobody's going to survive the 1920s. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's mean? when it ended. But I, that's what I didn't like about it. I was just like, really? Okay. Mm. I know that's like extrapolating mm-hmm. a bit, but it's mm. just, I, 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 what I wrote down was, it doesn't obey the rules of the context in its universe. That's what I wrote down. Mm. And that's why I was disappointed. I felt that it, even for things like horror and for for psychological thrillers to work, mm. there has to be rules that are obeyed. And I felt it didn't obey mm. the rules and just made stuff up as it went along. Mm-hmm. And also didn't take the opportunity to use elements of the genre to effect. Which brings us quite nicely, actually, oh. to the, the old dark house. Yes. The theme of horror films. Because the next phase of the story is across the causeway to the old dark house. Eelmarsh house. Uh, yes. In Eelmar- Eelmarsh house, which, which we are transported to via the lovely William Simons, the famously pockmarked actor who yes. we lost. But... It's a nice little cameo from him as John Keckwick. 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 And uh, uh, one of the things I notice is here is, is we get there are some very nice bird calls on on the causeway, and this this is one of those things that I just dwell on because that's what I do. <laughs> but um... <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh so much. As it does. <laughs> There's some you can you can hear curlew and curlew and oyster catch. Gosh, so I'm, I, good. I am often surprised. As I was when I was watching Blake Seven the other week. In the very first episode of Blake Seven, when they go outside the dome, you hear a tawny owl, <laughs> which is BBC shorthand for "you're outdoors at night now." So when you're at the coast, you sometimes get the soundtrack. I don't know whether these birds were actually just there when they recorded the scene, and it is just the general sense of there's there are curlew, there are oyster catchers, or whether there is this LP that has the bird calls. It's, it's an important question, and I think out of everything else, that's the thing I want solving. <laughs> I'm just to be see because I, I there used to be a thing he said that, sarcastically. <laughs> there used to be a thing that popped up when people were listening to the archers that it was always the same sheep noises. You see, yes. So I'm convinced that there is an LP that has these birds. <laughs> but I just thought I would it it it, it drew my ears, shall we say, as we, as I was watching this. I love your world, Holmes. <laughs> oh, I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we get to the uh, Eel Marsh yeah. house, and it's a, it's a very nice house. Unfortunately, it's full of stuff, and it's it's uh, you kind of think I, I could I could I could quite happily have a house like that. Thank you very much. It actually, we seem to have about the same amount of stuff, but crammed into a very small house. Yeah. And what fascinates me, of course, is when uh, later on in the plot, off screen, we never see it. It burns to the ground. I'm kind of sat there thinking, oh, there's some really nice stuff in. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, that was a cheap way of doing that off screen. Honestly, yeah, well, you you do you do get the fire alarms as he's having his fit, the fire bells. Oh yeah, you okay, hear, yeah. You do hear a fire engine, and that is literally I the know, only. That, I thought, come on, please show the house on fire. Okay, no, we're not doing that. Good to know. <laughs> now, of course, this uh, there's also I mean, there's some nice old techie stuff in it. I mean, you get the um, the strange wax cylinder recording device upon which. The old woman, who has obviously lived in this house for decades on her own, has recorded her things that we need to know. I know, conveniently. But what I really had a problem, again, was mm. with this. 
this element, I wrote down wax cylinders, big problem. I had toy soldiers, wax <laughs> wax cylinders as my key things. My problem with that is if you're going to have a device like a wax cylinder, then mm. make sure that you have the child's voice recorded onto it or something mm. like that. No. It was literally just the woman, old woman's voice and his voice. Mm. Make it creepy. <laughs> Play the wax cylinder and have a child's voice on there. Have Nathaniel's voice on there. No, we're not going to. Ha- we're not going to take that opportunity. And I thought again, that's crazy. Why would you do that? I was dumbfounded by the lack of the use of the wax cylinders there. Hello. Don't you think? Well, they all melted in the fire. I know. Yeah, it, it's it, just a it's, wasted opportunity. I mean, they were also in the in the box at the end that got thrown on the fire. But it's kind of yeah, they they didn't actually serve any other purpose other than as a as a framing device. Yeah. And unfortunately, they're a very it's 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 weird. It, it's a very audio medium for a visual medium. Yeah. To use, if you see what I yeah. mean. I know. I know you can do lots of creepy close-ups, and you know, and you can hear noises and all that. But it it actually is a very peculiar medium to have picked. Really, in many ways, you almost feel that the, the sort of paperwork and the flashback might have been more interesting. I don't know. Yeah, and it's, that's interesting. Uh, there was no flashbacks actually to the time it would have been kind of nice if you'd actually seen pauline moran younger mm. and that situation mm. some of that mm. um because then you might have had some sympathy maybe mm. but because you just have to hear snatches of it and yeah but i just thought the wax cylinders honestly i would have so recorded something on a wax cylinder for that one of the purposes of the wax cylinder i suppose mm. is that a lot of the stage play as well, actually, but they both rely on sound, and the the sequence that's quite famous is the horse falling in the swamp and the drowning yeah. and the screaming, yeah. which which um, theatre productions across the country have to make their own versions <laughs> yes, and of, have fun doing it, no doubt, and have fun doing it. Yes, and, and sitting here in the stalls, going, "Ah, we're drowning!" <laughs> or, 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 oh, we are drowning!" <laughs> as, depending on what sort of theatre company they are. <laughs> I believe we are drowning. This. Uh, oh, we haven't got a horse. Well, we got a puppy. That'll do. Yeah. Get no. um. quick! I'm here on the path. I was coming to meet you. Get quick! Get quick! So whatever, yeah. So this, so the soundscapes are actually quite important to the story, and they, and so maybe just having another audio medium. That's the thing that interests me about the connection with the stone tape is that Nigel, one of Nigel Neal's tropes, if you like, is mediums that record or mediums that record things or houses, old houses that remember things. So you get soundscapes, you know. Yeah, and it, it's. Uh, and it's interesting to me that because the, they actually mention, you know, that uh, 
that how the house has recorded these memories or the or the causeway has recorded these memories or you know and again then you get the actual wax cylinders as well but in the stone tape it's the building they're in is recorded you know they're looking for a new recording medium so it is one of those things that he does quite a lot it was exactly the same sequence of sounds as the previous time a pony and trap going into the marsh getting stuck and sinking every detail is as if it was somehow recorded like the machine I'm speaking into now. It would be a great relief to know that's all it was, with the voices, particularly the child screaming. That was two hours ago, and there's been nothing since. I'm in the study, I've made up a bed here and lit a fire. I'm going to work on now. The dog is a great comfort. You see, I like I like that idea a lot. I like that, mm. and because I, I, I that's something I believe in that places mm. have resonances and mm. retain something of what happened in them, and that's something I kind of get on board with. Yeah, but well, yeah, well, what this takes you to is, is is a later sequence where they why do we why are we scared by things mm. within this house? Eventually, there is there is the the locked door that you can't get through suddenly opens uh-huh. without and we are drawn into the room which is the child's bedroom yeah the nursery uh, and there is and there is a very effective thing with the with the sound of a ball bounce mm. Admit that is one of the the better moments is when you when the ball just falls. Yeah, in the middle of that scene, I do think that's that's very effective. Uh, but but again, it's this interesting thing to me now is why do uh, you know you're in a house and you're on on your own, you know why do some days it feels just perfectly la 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 it's just my house and other days it freaks you out. Uh, what is it about inanimate objects that sort of bother you? And is it always the soundtrack? <laughs> That's what I'm asking. Because I'm I'm very intrigued by the fact that they actually they actually use pretty much note for note the psycho music at one oh, point. Do they? because um here in this house and we bought this big old vicarage and mm. one of my concerns about buying it was that it was a really old house from the 1830s it was built and i was thinking 
oh, it's probably got a sense because I'm slightly superstitious. I would feel like oh, it maybe mm-hmm. has sort of resonances and and but very quickly, I've I've always felt utterly safe in this house. It's really weird, and the mm. big gardens around it as well really safe and even though it's like pitch black outside i've never walked around the garden ever felt Mm. any sort of fear and Mm. it's really weird because because ordinarily it would be a bit freaky and creepy but some some places Mm. i just think have a good feel and it was funny because we we accidentally met the previous owners um Mm. the previous previous owners the people who had it back in the 80s because they live away in the village we we went to visit their garden this open gardens thing Mm. And we met them and we said where we were from. And they're like, oh, gosh. <laughs> and they were like really shocked. And I'm like, oh, we've got your old house. And they're like, yes, you have. And the, one of the first things the woman said to me, the um, this um, lady was, it's got a good feel about it, hasn't it? And I'm like, yes, it has. There's no nastiness in it. And some places there is a feel, but this place mm. hasn't. Sorry, that was a very long answer to your question. Apologies. But the worst part, the hardest to take, that is, was the noises, the, the pony and trap in the marsh and the screaming. Right now, I'll be devil's advocate. Suppose I suggest a perfectly commonplace explanation. You can try. There were dense patches of sea fog. Yes. Now, those can distort sound. Blanket some off and let others through. Suppose what you heard was Keckwick's trap on the far end of the causeway, on his way back. About the screams? Seabirds. No. Ah, you're a townie. You don't know what a gull can sound like. They can make cries you'd swear came from, say, a cat or a baby. I wish I could believe that. Do you believe in ghosts? Never have. Why not? They were just stories. Made up? Yes. So you're a sceptic. Well, I was until today. She was quite real. I, I felt I could have walked up to her and touched her. Did she see you? Eh? See you, did she? Like I'm seeing you now. Yes, I'm sure. It was her eyes. She wasn't just looking, she, she was hating. You could tell? It was somehow like a hunger kind of dreadful, mad hunger that had all turned to hate. Against you? It felt like that. There was a... sort of power coming from her. And that's where you ran. You were scared. Well, she, she, she neither spoke nor came near me. If she was able to make me afraid, well, that was all. I just, I just wonder sometimes, I mean, you know, it, it, what I'm really saying is the power of suggestion if you take away the soundtrack from this is it just close-ups of objects and if you put sort of i don't know airy fairy sort of carnival music on it would it not freak you out at all so what is it about you know creeping shots of objects and certain discordant notes the reason i was mentioning the psycho music was that it it uses the same discord the same notes the discordant notes that are supposed we are supposed to naturally find disturbing you know yeah i think a rock a rocking horse is always scary and i think as soon as i saw it was a nursery i was like oh, well nurseries are creepy yeah 
Well, again, one of the main scenes in the stage play is the old woman on the rocking chair. Right. That is that is one of the disturbing moments when you go and see the play. Right. It's just one of those things. So, yes, they do uh, lots and lots of tricks with that sort of thing. See, the other thing that bothers me is that, and I, I, should, I should tell the story. Go on. But uh, it's just when I was... Well, I was watching this the other morning. <laughs> Bloody light went out. <laughs> I was watching it in the dark uh, in the morning, but I had the, the room light on. And uh, <laughs> bloody bulb went. <laughs> uh, right as he was sort of uh, trying the locked door. That was the moment. Oh, and freak. it just... Oh, that, and that... Thanks. Thanks, world. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing for, about that is later on, uh, I... Because I don't like leaving sockets open, I took the bulb out, you know, and I thought oh, I better put it back in because I, we didn't have a spare. Yeah, and the light worked fine. Uh, uh, Granted, uh, it blew again later in the day, <laughs> so 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 I now have a haunted light bulb. Are you so, telling uh, me so that the woman fun. in black exists now? That's what you're telling me, isn't it? No, what I'm what I'm I'm just what I'm trying <laughs> to say is that ordinary objects can freak you out for no very good reason. Yeah, and that's what these horror films play on. But I just wonder whether it's context. And the sound. Yeah, the sound you know, is definitely if, a huge part. If we'd been watching, I don't know, we'd been watching Heidi High or something, God help us. Um, <laughs> you know, wow. and the bulb and the bulb went, it wouldn't have bothered me at all. I would just go, no, of course oh, the bulb's not. gone. It's because it's part but of the genre. Because you're in the middle of watching a ghost story, yes. <laughs> the timing couldn't have been worse. And I just thought that was sort of slightly interesting how, how we react to these things is, is just yeah, it's just, heightened. Yeah, of yeah. course it is. And the use and the use of sound within this plot. Anyway, basically, um, horrible things happen at the house. Interesting thing with the uh, the, the strange ge- generator thing. Yeah. Have you worked out how that generator works yet? I haven't sat and thought about it because I'm famously the sort of person who never wants to know how anything works. So when oh, Eamon Holmes used to say, how did they do that? I would be like, I don't care and turn over. Anyway, carry on. I'm so glad to hear that. I went, I went to stay with some people yeah. once and there was no... There was no cold water yeah. in the morning, so but, but the hot tap was working. So I just thought, oh, I'll fill, I'll fill the kettle from the hot yeah. tap give myself a cup of tea. And later on, it turned out that there was a problem with the uh, plumbing. Yeah. And I said, oh yeah, there was no there was no cold water this morning. And they said, and uh, didn't didn't you didn't you want to know why? Didn't you didn't it cross your mind to ask why? And I thought, well, no, no I just the water, <laughs> I don't water care. was off. I just. <laughs> Yeah, and, and they genuinely were surprised that I wasn't interested at all in how the plumbing of a house I'd never been in before worked. And I got really, really told off by these people. Oh, really? How strange! It, it was a very strange couple of days, I'll tell you. But um, yeah, no, they were they were appalled that I didn't no. go immediately to start trying to find out why there was no, no cold water. No. And I was thinking, well, yeah, I, the other tap worked, so I made myself a cup of tea. Yeah, that was as much engagement with the, how the plumbing of their house. Worked it reminds me of I going to that that, that famous house, um, Cragside in Northumberland, which was one of, okay. one of the first stately homes to have electricity. And if you right. go there. If you're not interested in that, it's a really tough visit because they literally right. thrust it down your throat at every opportunity. And I'm like, I don't care. I just came to see the gardens and the house. Yes, it's yes. nice. It's got electricity before everywhere else. Mm. I don't need to know why. I'm not mm. interested. <laughs> I'm uh, yeah, and and this is the thing. But but again, because we've been watching, there've been these Fred Dibner programs. Okay. And so, you know, blah. But, but he, he sort of, the chap goes in, he just winds this thing twice, and this thing starts chugging. Mm. And they've got power in the house. 
And I kind of think, well, that seems easy. <laughs> <laughs> where's, you know, where's the coal? Where's the, where, how is this thing? It basically, because I think, well, it can't, I know that perpetual motion is a myth. So you can't just, it won't just chug on its own. You know, what was powering that generator? And I genuinely was asking myself, I'm thinking, why am I asking myself this? I'm watching this. I'm supposed to be, <laughs> but I, my, my head is going, how, what, what's running that? You get a very nice sequence again on in, in when he finds the graveyard. Well, before on, we get to that, can I just go back to the electricity? Yep. Okay. The electricity in the generator was all added and isn't in the book, apparently. And right. I thought, okay. So I read that beforehand. I read the little booklet saying that was the case. And I was like, oh, mm. so that means it's deliberately put in so mm. the lights can go off, which, of course, they do. Mm. But I never thought that they used that to effect. I did not think the lighting was used to good effect in this. I really absolutely would have had a shadow of the woman in black in silhouette at some point once mm. the lights went out or mm. having the lights go back on at a point at which you saw her. I would have used the lights for that. And I just mm. felt directorially it was really missing the opportunity. I mean, if, if, you, if you're trying to avoid the cliche, but you, you do need that thing where you get the flash of lightning and you see her and you get the flash of lightning and she's not there and all that kind yeah. of thing. Th those are the kind of horror movie tropes that you're but kind of not expecting. But they're not there. And mm. and maybe you could argue they were avoiding the obvious, but they avoided so mm. many opportunities for it to be more more exciting, Pro proper scares, yeah. proper thrills and yeah, scares. Mm. Yes, missed. I mean the sequence again. The sequence on the causeway in the graveyardy causeway thing again. It's nicely realised yeah. where she does appear, uh, and you do get a very nice close up of the makeup, which is which is good. Yeah. And uh, the dog runs away, but you know. The uh, teletrope fans, the dog survives. Well, I wrote down very early morning of the dog is what I wrote down mm. <laughs> because mm. this, this is one of these very few moments where he actually talks to himself. Or is it? Is it narrated? I can't remember. But he says, "I was certain the dog was dead. I knew the dog was dead." Mm. And I was like, "You mourned that dog very quickly." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "There's no reason to think that dog's dead." No. And, and I, I thought it was quite yeah, as you say, it was quite funny that it wasn't. <laughs> You can't, you can't kill the dog. It's, it's the, it's the, children, it's the one rule. Children, fine. Kill the children. Yeah, yeah, as yeah, many yeah. children as you want, but the dog's got yeah. to survive. Yeah, I mean, as as we've known in some of our previous things, cats don't make it very no, often. The things we've cats are very much, they're, they're to be destroyed, apparently. But the dog has to survive. Yeah. Yes. Right. Anyway, he is rescued from the house. He's gone a bit loopy on his own out there, which is apparently what happens. Yeah. And he's rescued by uh, Sam Tuvi. Yeah. Who takes him back to his house and and so on and so forth and and, and there's all this talk about how and that's a nice scene actually with his wife and him and it, and it's sort of you know they're, they're talking about how they had their own losses but the fact that they pretend they've never had children is, is interesting and I assume that the the implication of that is that they chose not to have another one because in in this era people were having sort of dozens of them weren't they? yeah. But it is unusual because, like you say, then it becomes this whole thing about how he is accumulating farmland for no very good reason whatsoever. Yeah, I thought, he's got nobody to leave it I to. I thought him. that was the most interesting thing of all. The whole mm. thing was... The pointlessness of... Hobbies. He actually said of hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. like... I, was, I, thought I took that a bit to heart. I was like, my, my hobbies aren't pointless, are they? Or maybe they are. No, I just liked the fact that there was that was a really nice character moment. You understood more about him... And also about the pointlessness of human existence to a degree, which is something mm. is a theme that's come regularly out of these episodes. Mm. But no, I just thought I would have liked a bit more on that and a bit mm. more, um, just a, a more themes throughout, more things where it was trying yeah. to say something. It was very much, 
Now you must go to Ilmarsh House. I now will take you back from Ilmarsh House. And now mm. you will go to the inn. And it was very much, mm. very much just saying what happened or what's going to mm. happen. And the, mm. I just was found it disappointingly sparse as a script in terms mm. of what it was saying about anything. I just thought mm. there's no message I'm taking away from this. Mm. And I'm surprised because I really thought mm. there would be a lot more in it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But- <laughs> um, yes. Sorry. So, um, basically, well, basically, uh, our hero has has a bit of a breakdown. Yeah. Uh, the, the ghost tries to come and get him in in the scene that we mentioned earlier, which is uh, you know fam- famous. Yeah. The famous. Just scene to say about that scene, menace. I think it's held on her face far too long, mm. and I thought it was more, it would be more effective if it had been shorter. And the fact that it was held on for so mm. long, I was like, and I'm starting to look at the makeup and starting to give it a mark out of ten. Mm. I didn't think it was. Should have been held that long, personally. I think it's it's more interesting when you when you actually cut to the commercials and the, but the sound can, would, would carry on. I think that would yeah, be kind of an interesting. The actual sound should stay with you longer than necessarily the image. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of true. Uh, and then basically goes home after his breakdown. You, know, you have that. Uh, and, you again, have that silly scene in which the two of these are nice to him. That scene with Fiona Walker when she says. Oh, I I do hope it's all over now, which is obviously saying it's not all over now. And it it it's just again it's that sort of like, oh, we wouldn't like to be here after dark sort of dialogue, which I just thought was really hackneyed and cliched, but maybe that's what people who like this sort of thing like. I don't know. And they and they do promise him a dog. <laughs> do they? Oh they they do promise There's him a, a dog. Spider's yeah. spider's progeny. Whenever he has pops, yes. obviously that's not going to happen. Um, no, because anyway. the woman in black would be all over those puppies. They're dead. <laughs> but it's just—it it is fascinating, though, because the other—the other side of this coin is that um, I don't know about you, but I, I started at this point to to think about nineteen twenties life because ah, uh, the Kips, the kid family, I should say, uh, a. a Pretty well off, really, aren't they? Yes. I mean, I know he was. I know he was a l- lawyer, but he wasn't. You know, he was a young lawyer. He was a young partner, but, wasn't he? Or whatever. But, yeah. but they have. Uh, it's this thing about the having of servants that gets me. And I know again, it was perfectly part of the way things were set up in yeah. the twenties and thirties. But it strikes me as when you come home from being away, the fact that what the, the maid will just make you a cake, a coming home cake. Yeah. I kind of think that'd be handy, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've I've never been in a position where I could ever have wanted or needed or had servants, but the fact that that when you when you come home from somewhere, someone you just, get a cake. Oh, here's your dinner. You don't have to worry about oh god, I've got to do this now. I've got to do this now. Oh god, you no, know, no, so there's a cake for you. But you know they you know, they, had, they had it good. Didn't they? Yeah, they did. I mean, I, At that end of society. Just to mention about the cake, I felt that the cake was going to be significant because they did dwell on it for quite a long time. And there's like mm. the knife was there, and I was like, "Is something going to happen?" Oh no, it's just a cake. <laughs> it's gonna... There's cake. There's quite a lot there's of times where I was thinking, "No, do something with it," and they didn't. Regularly, mm. anyway. Yes. And so our, our story rattles to end. He goes back to work oh. a bit too soon. Just, just he's actually the archetypal. Don't go back to work until you're better. Scene, wasn't it? <laughs> Honestly, it was so funny. He's like, "You shouldn't be here." It was. Yeah. Like, but can I just say the setting of the fire that mm. I just completely lost lost my 
lost my whatever that it was just hilarious. Mm. Marisa watched it with me as well. I was like, we're like, what the fuck is he doing? He's setting a fire by throwing. We'll destroy the. We'll destroy the room he's standing in <laughs> by just like throwing it towards the fireplace and like. It doesn't make any sense. Was it? To sp- I suppose it was just that his mind was starting to get so broken and so upset that he was mm. just going to set fire to the stuff where it lay. But he kind of did mm. a bit of a job of trying to get it towards the fireplace, but not enough. Mm. And it was just, it just like was bizarre. I was like, "What are you doing?" It, that it's it, it is an unusual uh, <laughs> choice. It was so weird. I was like, yeah, "What?" I, I must admit, I was because I was trying to work out. It. I know, I know. He'd had the row with the the boss yeah. with David Royal yeah. and all this kind of thing, but this, and he sort of gets told, "Oh, oh the box came," yeah. and that's like, "Ooh, oh, my, oh the, there is a vestige of this house, yeah. and maybe that's why the ghost can move to London because of the, yes, that's the only thing left." I mean, okay, you want you know, that that kind of thing you get, but there's this, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so like, weird. It's a, to be fair, it was a very nice box. I mean, had, had we been watching it, you know, we'd yeah. have thought, oh, quite nice to have who's that." Yeah. Nice box there. Yeah. Yes. But I was just taken out of it because that fire setting was just so it, weird. It, it, yeah, I mean, you've, you've, you've got, okay, it's not a very big fireplace in his office. I mean, it's all a bit uh, Bob Cratchit in that sense. Mm. He's got, he's got two, room for two small lumps of coal and, and not much. Yes. But, uh, and, <laughs> and he goes out and buys some petrol. Yeah, he didn't even need to. You know, why did that? he need to go and buy petrol? I didn't understand that. To make sure things burned properly, I imagine. <laughs> yes, but it was just a bit bizarre. Yeah, it's an unusual... There are some unusual choices that are made in, in that sequence. Yes, um, there are. And and obviously... Uh, but his jacket survives. That's Good. quite nice. Because he's able, to, he's able to grab his jacket yeah. uh, when, when, he, when he finally leaves the office. And, the, and, there's, and, there's, a, and there's a fireman, isn't there, there's a, who, who seems very... Very, <laughs> very perturbed. Yes! <laughs> I mean, I know... He's, 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 he's making a, a very, a very, very plain that he knows that this man is a firebug. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he's like, definitely arson here. Uh, he did it deliberately. It was no accident, this. <laughs> be no accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you are, sir. The proof. Paraffin. Yeah. I smell it straight off. What the hell were you up to? I'll deal with this. Here, give that to me. Evidence. Are you mad? I had to burn it all. Why? You knew, didn't you? You knew all along and you still let me die! I don't Go, go home and stay there. Go home. So basically, um, he's gone a bit loon. And, um, <laughs> he's um, he's tunes. Yeah, and uh, he goes home again, and they decide to go out for the day. Voting as you would, it. yes. And 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 oh uh, yes, the woman in black appears again on the lake, and they're all doomed. And there we are. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. A bit of a comedy scream from his wife as well. I thought before the tree fell, or as the tree fell. I didn't think that was great. Well, you know, she's she's very she's very together and and, and closed in. in yeah. uh, when she's the pathologist in, in Morrison Lewis. Yeah. So, um, maybe 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 she realised that the uh, comedy scream 
career path wasn't for him. No, so. no. Closed off. So there we are, really. That's, yes. that's the woman in black. You're not mad keen. I'm not. Um, as I said, production design, good. I like mm. the spooky atmospheric feel. I thought the casting was good, apart from the lead, who I didn't mm. think was very charismatic. Um, mm. But I thought there were so many opportunities to make it scarier and to use things mm. for more effect in the plot that weren't used. And I also thought the motivation of the woman in black was confused and befuddled and that mm. the rules weren't obeyed within the universe of what that all meant. Mm. And as you said, they all died. Why didn't their children die? And why didn't they have to, why didn't they have to mm. live with that? Would have made more sense. Mm. And not the, the criminal lack of use of the wax cylinders and the toy soldier. Bad. Mm. It is difficult. I it? give it I give it a six out of ten. Ah, six. Oh, that's better than I thought it was. <laughs> You, d- you didn't say I'm going to throw this on the bonfire. Oh, I'm going no, to step fire to it in said, my living room. Anyone who wants, well, halfway anyone who wants it on Blu-ray, I'll I'll send it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay. Yes, it does come with a nice little press booklet. Did you get the press booklet? Mine seemed. Oh yes, yes. yeah. A, oh, you got the proper proper edition. Oh, I yes. did, darling. Um, yeah. Which is really nice because. I was always on the hunt. When I used to do the DVD releases, I was always mm. knew that press packs existed for most series, but could I get hold of them from mm. people? Oh, it was so hard. Mm. But um, yeah, so it's nice to have that reproduced as it would be with the crap font. Mm. Yes. Mm. It it just doesn't, unfortunately, fit inside the... Uh, I know, the they had to send it separately, didn't they? And I thought that was quite funny that I think someone fucked up at Network's End. <laughs> And the in- had it printed DVD. Yeah, side. I think it, the intention was that it should be yeah, exactly that, and that that was my assumption. <laughs> oh, well. Yes. So not ma- not massively smitten by no, the. No, but I hope I haven't spoiled your experience of it, and that you enjoyed it. Did you? Well, I, I, I'm, we will watch it again. I'm sure at some point. But uh, but like I say, I'm not massively drawn to horror. Things. No, and I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm. I'm it, it does bother me to a certain extent that that you know I don't I don't like we don't we don't come here to to trash things as a rule. No, it's um it's just it, there's a lot that we didn't enjoy in it. Like I say it was a perfectly fine adaptation. I'm just surprised in the end, I suppose, that I prefer the theatre version, which yeah, for a lot of people don't like theatre at all. But uh, but I I certainly found the theatre version more effective and and the and the theatre version is literally based around two actors right so you would you would think in many ways it's so much simpler but but when it when it works on stage it works incredibly well right and, uh, yeah you know uh, and I think that you know in in the end the story whatever it is obviously has legs. The, the book is you know it's is one people talk about the stage play is one people talk about and and this production is one people talk about so it does strike a chord with people I don't really know whether the two Hammer film versions are I mean again I th- I feel that they possibly fall into a more generic sense of yet another horror film yeah you know how certain horror films stick out in your memory yeah and they stick out in history. Well, the the Hammer film version sort of came and went and doesn't seem to have had 
people don't really seem to remember it. I mean, unless you're a particular Daniel um, Radcliffe fan, you know, it's kind of it, it seems to have sort of almost vanished from memory. So it's it's a, it's an interesting one, but they do keep coming back to it. Yeah. But uh, from my point of view, I personally preferred the theatre version. Uh, and like I say, I don't. I mean, the fact that I went to the theatre twice to see a play is in in and of itself quite interesting, I suppose. Mm. But anyway, as, as a sort of two hours on a Christmas Eve in 1989, it it was an effective retelling. And the people who remember it and rave about it obviously feel differently. And the people who saw it at the time that it stayed with them, it really did stay with them. So who are we to argue? But personally, it it's not, to me, it's not the greatest of Neil. And if you do want to watch some Nigel Neil, Go and see the BBC's Quite a Mass of the Pit. <laughs> yes. And the film and the film The Entertainer, which I heartily recommend. Brilliant film. I'm, really I'm, surprised. I'm sure me. I've seen it. Oh, it's so good. Oh, honestly. The scenes. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Okay. Yes. So until next time. Yeah. I've been Andy. And I've been Martin. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. been listening to an A to Z of UK TV drama with Andy and Martin. Next time, the XYY Man.